So um, we are going to, for the next uh, four Sundays, be looking at the book of Psalms, the prayer book of Israel and also uh, the prayer book of, of the church. If we um, ask people, if you go up to somebody and say, what is the favorite book of the Bible? Or if you could only have one book of the Bible, what would you have? Very many people say, I would have the Psalms. The Psalms speak out of the heart and it speak to the heart. And um, so we're going to take a look uh, we're not going to get very far. There's 150 psalms, and we've only got four Sundays, so we're just going to kind of jump through the psalms a little bit and see what God has for us. But the psalm is a big book, and it's filled with lots of different kinds of psalms, and so I want to give you a big overview of the book of psalms, and there's a group of people called the Bible Project. Some of you know about them, and they put together great little videos about overviews of the books of the Bible. So um, I'm going to ask the the gang upstairs to um, uh, show us this video that gives us an overview of the book of psalms, and then we're going to focus on Psalm 1 and 2 today. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73 actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. 
Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses, and he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of Book 4 is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book 5 opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic 
kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in Book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally, too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. At the end of the service today, there's going to be a test to see how well you do, <clears throat> how well you uh, listened. But much like most of the book, if not all the books of the scriptures, um, there is a deepness to them. And the more you study God's word and get into God's word, you begin to, to find out uh, the beauty um, of God's word and how it was created and, and how it is um, for us. And I hope that you will um, take time to uh, read through uh, the Psalms, uh, seeing it from beginning to end. In fact, that's good to do with any of the books of the Bible. Um, it's really, uh, well, I'll probably step out on a on thin ice here, but um, some of us, all we do is we uh, pick and choose the verses that we want to look at. We all have um, 
uh, a familiar few that uh, if someone were to ask, uh, what's your favorite verse, you, uh, most of you would have a verse uh, to go to. And that's good, to hide God's word in your heart. But um, our, the Hebrews used to uh, take the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, and put them to memory. That's a pretty good chunk of scripture that you would hide in your heart. Not just single verses, but whole portions of scripture because they were written as whole portions of scripture to help us see um, what is going on and what God would have for us. So I I would encourage you to to read um, books of the Bible and begin to see how they uh, move uh, together. Um, the people who do um, the Bible Project videos um, have a saying that they return to uh, on almost all of their videos, and uh, they say that the, the Bible is a unified story that always points to Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, whether you're in Exodus or you're in Revelation, whether you're in the Psalms or the book of Romans, they all point to Jesus. We can see Jesus in, in all of those writings. And yes, it may mean that we have to dig a little deeper, but he is there. Um, so I hope that you uh, enjoyed or saw good uh, wholeness to the Psalms. And if you uh, want to, we've even uh, printed up that last uh, picture that kind of puts it all together. And if you've got colored pencils, you can use this as an art form as well and take this home and and color it. But they're on the welcome table if you're interested in in seeing all those. But we want to spend some time in uh, the Psalms. So if you have your um, scriptures with you, um, would you turn to Psalm chapter 1 and chapter 2? I was pointing out to us in the video that these kind of set themselves aside a little bit. They are the introduction to the whole of the scriptures. In fact, um, many times as we look at Hebrew scriptures, uh, chapters 1 and 2 are always read together. Uh, They are meant to work together. In uh, Psalm 1, there is no... um, uh, author given to Psalm 1, and in Psalm 2, there's no author right at the beginning, but if you were to go to Acts chapter 4, verses 25, and I think it's 25 through 27, um, the people there are talking about um, what has taken place in the midst of Psalm 2, and they attribute it to to David, and so we will... um, go with their lead and say that we don't know who wrote uh, chapter 1, but we're going to look toward uh, David as the author of chapter 2. Let me read um, these scriptures for us, and then we're going to um, make a couple comments. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. Yahweh says to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed is the man, chapter 1 tells us, blessed is the man who... Um, hides God's word, as it were, in his heart, who meditates on the scriptures day and night. Wherever he is or she is, there is the scripture that they ha have known in their hearts, and they bring that to their memory. And all the things that they encounter in the course of the day, the word of God comes back to them. It is part of their life. The psalmist says that the person who meditates on God's word, the law, and we saw in the video with the law here does not necessarily mean the Ten Commandments, but the whole of God's word. And for the Jew, it was specifically meant here the Torah, the teachings, the five books of Moses that gives... Uh, Israel, the basis for their belief and understanding of, of God and of his creation. He says the one who meditates on God's word is going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. If you've read God's word, does that strike a picture for you of a tree? Was there a tree somewhere else in the in the Torah that comes to mind? Maybe in Genesis chapter 2 there was a tree. Not only the tree of good and evil, but I think of specifically the tree of life. And for those uh, Jews that 
have memorized the word of God and have held it to themselves, made it part of their lives. When they hear and see a picture of this tree, it hearkens them back to God's creation, God's life. In fact, the psalmist says that this tree is planted by streams of water. And we remember from Genesis chapter 2 how... uh, the rivers flowed through the garden. That four rivers split out across the land. Streams of water. Trees that yield fruit. I think of Jesus' words um, in chapter 15 of John where he says that he is the vine and we are the branches and we need to abide in him and have him abide in us. And as we do that, we will do what? We will bear fruit. You see how the whole of God's word works together. We will bear fruit in the season, and our leaf will not wither. We will have an effective life. When it says he will prosper, it doesn't mean you're going to get rich and famous. It's talking about the effectual good of your life. You will prosper. So chapter 1, or Psalm 1, says, Blessed is the one who centers themselves, settles themselves in God's word. Who ruminate on it day and night. In chapter 2, we are introduced to the Messiah. God's anointed one set over the people who raged, the nations who would set them up. In fact, chapter uh, Psalm number two kind of finishes uh, what Psalm one has started. Psalm one talks about the wicked that will not stand before God. That they will perish. And then there is kind of an enlarging of who the wicked are and what they are like. They set themselves up against God and and him being ruler. They want to rule for themselves. They stand against God's anointed. We have to remember that God has given us a savior. And that savior is... uh, not in the medicine we take, or for some of you, the shots that you have just received over the past month. That is not our Savior. Our Savior is not found in society, it's not found in our governments. They are not here to save. There is only one who came to be our savior that moves us from dark to light, from wickedness to righteousness, and that is God's anointed, Jesus the Messiah. We must not set ourselves up against him 
We read in verses 7 and 8 that God has set up his son. And God will give him all the nations to the ends of the earth as his possession. He is Lord of all. So, kings of the earth, be wise, be warned. Serve Yahweh with fear. Interesting, it says, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is a a right kind of fear that we should have before the Almighty God, for he can be and is against evil, uh, wrathful. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So it starts with blessing in Psalm 1 and it ends with blessing in Psalm 2. Blessed is the one who is centered on God's word. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In the end of it all, we are here in Psalm 1 and 2 called to be two people. We are called to be people of the word of God. Somebody said people of the book. We are called to be people of the word of God. And second of all, we are called to be people of the word who is God. As the apostle John wrote at the beginning of his uh, gospel account of Jesus' life, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this word of God that was at creation, that existed before all things with with the triune God, with God the Father and God the Spirit, this word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, made his tabernacle here, pitched his tent, lived for us and died for us on the cross and rose triumphant like we celebrated last Sunday. We are called to abide in the word of God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to um, that young pastor, Timothy, he says that the word of God is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God. And it's profitable. It's good for you, for teaching, for training, for correction. God's word is profitable for us. So, church, whether you're here in this room or whether you're watching online, let us commit today to be people of the word, this written word of God, that by it we can know who God is and know what God does. 
This was never meant to be a book that sat on the shelf or on a coffee table or on your bedside. It was a book meant to be opened and devoured. Let us be people of the word of God. And then let us be people of the word who is God. Let us follow Jesus the Messiah. Let us surrender our lives to him. There's always room for Jesus. Always room. That is part of it. hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.